Hello, I'm Guy Walters and this is History Now, a history podcast from Mail Plus. Now, one of the most frustrating things about being a historian is that you very seldom get to meet your heroes for the simple reason that they're dead. So today I'm going to do the next best thing and I'm going to meet the grandson of one of my heroes. Now the grandson is called Sebastian Neve and his grandfather was a man called Airy Neve who I'm sure quite a few of you have heard about because he was the first ever British officer to escape from Colditz. Colditz Castle, of course, was the supposedly escape-proof POW camp run by the Nazis to hold all the worst and most incorrigible escapers during the Second World War. And yet Airy Neve was a man who just walked out of it. I'm not going to give away exactly how he does that because we're going to find out about that a little bit later. But Neve not only escapes from Colditz, but he also goes on to serve the indictments against all the major Nazi war criminals at Nuremberg. And actually, it's his memoir on Nuremberg that is just being republished uh, right now, which I urge you to read, along with his four other memoirs that are all in print. Now, I'm really delighted to welcome uh, Sebastian onto the podcast. So uh, welcome, Sebastian. Good to have you on. Thank you very much, Guy. I'm delighted to be here. And I think that... uh... I sometimes worry I probably find myself talking more about my grandfather's war experiences than he did after the war, but delighted to be given the opportunity to do so. So before we come on to the war itself, I'd like to know just a little bit more about what your grandfather was up to before the war. What was he sort of training himself to become? Well, he studied law and and went to the bar where he'd been for about a year and a half, but also while at university, he joined the OTC and rather unfashionably at the time, became a a territorial army soldier. Um, And I think his decision in doing so was quite influenced by uh, an exchange he did uh, in Germany, where he spent the summer, age 17 actually, um, living with a German family and seeing firsthand, if you like, the sort of early rise of Nazism in in the early 30s. Uh, And while he was there, he, um, because I suppose what young boys do in the summer, he joined the local sports clubs, which had already been taken over, if you like, by the Nazis, and inadvertently, as a result, found himself taking part in an early Nazi rally whilst age seventeen. So what he had, so he had sort of seen, you know, the swastikas, you know, at first hand, so to speak, and that presumably had chilled him, I guess. Exactly, and I think from that moment on, and supposedly he wrote an essay about this in his sort of last year at school. From that moment on, he was convinced that that war was coming, if you like. So in many ways, he was, you know, part of that sort of strain of thought, like like Churchill, I suppose, and 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 Robert Van Sittert, who was a permanent undersecretary at the Foreign Office. They they were some of the very few Brits who really thought war was round the corner, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. And I think I'm sure he would be absolutely delighted to be compared to Churchill from such a young age. But I think <laughs> that immediate experience of being 17, see, taking part in the rally, being there, and then finding yourself ready, as it were, when war does break out and being, you know, drafted straight from from your wig time in the courts to the army. So could you tell us a little bit about what happens to him in these sort of early stages of the war when when he arrives in France? I don't want to get to Colditz quite so soon. So uh, how does he end up getting captured? Yes, so he's sent over with the BEF to France for the Battle of France as part of a rather interesting unit called the Searchlights, um, which at the time I think was part of the Royal Engineers, but later transferred to Royal Artillery. And through a sort of a few twists of fate, he finds himself as a troop commander in this searchlight regiment with some very big torches, which they actually had to leave behind 
a few rifles, but no heavy weapons to speak of, in Calais, which, as you almost certainly know, is where one of the sort of strong points, if you like, protecting Dunkirk and the evacuation that was going on at the beaches. So, so the people who were unfortunate enough to be in Calais were told to stay in Calais whilst they tried to get as many people off the beach at Dunkirk. And he, much later, described it as a, an unpleasant experience, um, knowing that you had three panzer divisions bearing down on you and you're there with not much to stand in the way. I can imagine, yes, it's quite a disquieting experience. And of course, he would have been a pretty young man. I mean, he would have been in his, what, very early 20s, I guess. Exactly, that's right. He was just 24 at this stage. You know, he sees action for the first time with three panzer divisions bearing down on him. He's actually wounded, wounded quite badly in the, the siege of Calais uh, and then is taken prisoner when Calais does eventually fall, but not before however many hundreds of thousands of British uh, troops have managed to get off the beach at Dunkirk. So he obviously ends up in a prisoner of war camp. What happens when he's there? Well, so the first camp he's taken to is in Germany, getting to Germany and then the, the sort of gates of the first castle. He's in a place called Spangenberg Castle first and that the gates sort of slamming behind him is a moment that I think he, he remembered for the rest of his life. And then from there, he's taken to another camp in Poland, which is a bit more of a sort of barrack-type camp, special-purpose camp that was built to hold prisoners of war. And that's the camp from which he makes his first escape attempt. Can you tell us a little bit about that attempt? So the plan was they wanted to... Well, he, he actually escaped with a, a hurricane pilot who'd been shot down around the time of the Battle of Calais and Dunkirk um, called Norman Forbes. And, and the plan was that they were going to break out of the camp and get to a local airfield that they knew of, steal a plane and fly effectively into the Soviet Union, the other side of the German-Soviet line. This is before the war on the Eastern Front had started. And they felt that the Soviets would hopefully treat them well and, and get them back. But once they got out of the camp, they made it quite far from Thorn, where they were, modern day Turin, to the outskirts of Warsaw on foot. But they were caught. And in my grandfather's wallet, they found the sort of hand-drawn map showing the aerodrome. And immediately, of course, they assumed that they were spies and they didn't want to believe that their protestations that no, we're escaped British officers. And they were handed over to the Gestapo. And he spent couple of days in the care of the Gestapo, which he, he later described in various sort of couch terms as being rather unpleasant. There are indications, I suppose, that he mentioned to people that he was actually tortured whilst with the Gestapo, but he, he certainly wrote in his memoirs that there was a, a sign on his door that said, Neve Airy Spy, and he was fairly convinced that this would be the end. But thankfully, good news, instead of being shot, he was told the next day that he was, in effect, being given a promotion as an escaper and being sent to Colditz. And I don't think he necessarily knew that much about Colditz yet, but it became very clear quite quickly that Colditz was uh, the bad boys camp where you got sent if you'd already demonstrated that you were a nuisance to the Germans. And most importantly for him, I suppose, it was filled with other people who wanted to escape. 
Yes, I mean, we tend today to think of all prisoners of war being escape hungry. I mean, I've written about the Great Escape, which is obviously from not from Cold, it's from, it's from a different camp. But there, I mean, some of the POWs, you listen to their interviews and, and they only about a third of POWs really were actively wanting to escape or help with escape activities. About two thirds of POWs just wanted to sit the war out um, because they just thought it was a pointless exercise. But your grandfather, of course, was a different breed of man to those who just wanted to sit it out. So when he arrives at Colditz, obviously everybody there has already been a kind of seasoned escaper. So it is a kind of crazy logic applied by the Germans here. You're putting all the best escapers in one place, which obviously in retrospect seems absolutely nuts exactly exactly and i think you know to, to that point it took him quite a long time to find an accomplice in his first camp and no one in his barrack if you like in his room wanted to escape with him and it took him a bit of time to find norman forbes to actually do the attempt but you know it must have been delightful arriving in colditz and realizing that by default everyone wanted to escape i mean i think that's absolutely fascinating and i never knew that your grandfather found it hard to find an escape partner initially Tell us, when was his first uh, escape attempt and, and what happened? So that was in the summer of 41, and it was a very individual escape, if you like. He was very strong-minded about escaping, obviously. But this first attempt, he, he did almost completely on his own. And he made a uniform of a Wehrmacht Lance Corporal. And unbeknownst to him, the, the colour that he painted the uniform, supposedly he was slightly colourblind, showed up under the floodlights as being almost sort of bright green rather than the field grey that it should have been. And, and as a result, when the lights hit him as he was trying to march out the camp dressed as a corporal, it became fairly clear quite quickly to the other guards that um, <laughs> he might not be up to any good. <laughs> so, I mean, this is incredibly brazen, isn't it? He just, he's just putting on a sort of, a, a, a literally a sort of jerry-rigged, jerry-uniform, ha-ha, and he's just trying to walk out the camp posing as a German corporal. I mean, that's literally it, is it? That's it. And I don't think his plan had got much further beyond what was going to happen once he got out of the camp. And he had some sort of workers' clothes or whatever pass for workers' clothes that they could muster under his fake uniform. But as I say, you know, the, the lights went on. He was bright green. Someone said, stop it before I shoot. And he decided that running perhaps might not be the best. Yeah, time. I could just imagine that the, the hand a hock, hand a hock. I mean, I think I think it's also important to remember that just... You know, these escapes were obviously by, by default had to be amateur. I mean, there's you've got to remember Colditz is a hell of a long way from Britain. You know, it's 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 beyond Leipzig. It's right there at the kind of bottom right of Germany, if you like. And uh, uh, I, I just love the idea of this sort of chap in his sort of early 20s putting on a sort of badly painted German uniform. That It's that brazenness of youth, isn't it? He thinks he's just going to walk out of a castle and end up magically somehow back in Britain. You know, I, it, it almost seems impossible that he's ever going to succeed, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. But I think the uniform caused rather a lot of amusement among the Germans, so much so that they got the, uh, the town photographer up to uh, take a photo of him in his corporal's uniform. Frustratingly, obviously, it's a black and white photo, so we can't quite see the shade of green it supposedly was but um uh, as you know guy you can now buy mugs in the game yeah well okay i'm, I'm going to declare an interest here because i i've been very fortunate to taken sebastian and his brother and his father so his father of course airy neve's son we all went to Colditz together a few years back as part of a, a, a historical tour. And so we had the privilege of guiding the Neve family to the places where his grandfather was. And there's a great big cut out figure of Airy right in the middle of the courtyard, which we've got a great picture of uh, everybody. In fact, we'll get that up on Twitter, hopefully, with your permission.
permission if that's all right. That photo I was just going to mention, um, uh, when I've shown it to people in the past, they've assumed that I have turned up in Colditz with an enormous cardboard cutout <laughs> of my grandfather dressed as a German corporal. I, I did not get on an easy jet flight to Berlin. No, I don't remember your grandfather's likeness sitting next to me on the plane. But you very kindly have actually, you bought me a mug to say thank you and with your grandfather on it. And I'm actually holding that in my hand right now. It's in my office and it's actually holding an ink cartridge in it. So there we go. It's got some use, but I don't want to dare use it for coffee in case I drop it because I value it so much. But anyway, let's talk about how he acts actually gets out the castle because he's he's kind of trying the same method from memory isn't he but it's a much more sophisticated attempt can, can you talk us through that of course so the, the the second attempt which uh you know same basic approach which is dress up as a german and walk out the front door but the difference with the second attempt is where in the castle he came from they'd been given permission, if you like, to use the theatre so they could put on plays. And the, the Germans felt that if they're putting on plays, then they're not trying to escape. But obviously they were doing both at the same time. But they realised that from the theatre, they could drop down into this series of rooms, pick a few locks and effectively emerge from the castle as if they were coming out of the guardroom. Uh, and yeah. so they put on this play. Uh, and when everyone was sort of applauding at the end my grandfather and a, a Dutch officer, and it was a sort of Anglo-Dutch enterprise, this particular vein of escape attempts, they both dressed up as uh, German officers, and they'd been practising this a lot more than his previous unsuccessful attempt. They'd been practising marching, if you like, like German officers. And um, the chap he escaped with, it's called Tony Lutain, who's the Dutch officer, posed as a Wehrmacht captain, and then my grandfather was his, if you like, his subordinate, a lieutenant. And they walked out of the castle and down through a wicket gate, which he saw when he was coming back from the town jail after solitary confinement from his first unsuccessful attempt and into this, this sort of grassy part in front of the castle. So hold on a second. They have su- So they successfully, him and, and Tony Lutain, managed to just blag their way out by looking the part. So this time it works, yeah? Looking the part, marching like Germans, but most importantly, I, although my grandfather spoke some German, I think it's fair to say that Tony Lutain's German would have been a, a lot better, there was a guard who looked at them quite suspiciously as they walked past. And Tony Lutain shouts at him, why on earth are you not saluting us? And, which he does, obviously, immediately. And they carry on. But this is brilliant. I mean, it's just like in a movie, isn't it? It's that classic bluff an escaper uses in a movie, you know, to make the nervous guard checking them, you know, uh, calling the bluff. And, and that's exactly what they do. I, I just love it. And they had a few more sort of hairy moments on their journey. So, that, I mean, the plan was to get as quickly as possible from Colditz to the Swiss frontier. So crossing the entire country, effectively. And by this stage, they've decided it's probably not sensible to continue trying to pretend to be German officers, (laughs) especially when you get to a trade station. So they're now posing as workers uh, and they walk from Colditz to the nearest station that isn't Colditz, which seems a bit obvious. And they get a train from a place called Leipzig to Leipzig. And then from Leipzig, they have to wait and get an early workers train down to Ulm towards the, the Swiss frontier. But while they're waiting, they're in the waiting room, my, my grandfather, in a, a lapse of concentration, gets some red cloth across chocolate out in the waiting room. And everyone, you know, this is sort of wartime Germany, everyone is staring at him eating this chocolate, thinking, where on earth have you got that from? 
<laughs> and so they, they have to sort of vacate that waiting room pretty quickly and sort of uh, lay low for a while before their train turns up. I can imagine how angry Tony Latane must have been with him, almost giving the game away just for such a little slip. There was another instance, similar instance, where he lit up an English cigarette in a cinema and apparently that the smell of Virginia tobacco was something that German nostrils hadn't had for quite some time. So he had to put that out quite quickly as well. So let's not go too much into his escape now because I also want to talk about Nuremberg and what happens there bit of a plot spoiler but we know he does get back to Britain at some point what what does he do very briefly when he's back in in London so when he gets back to London um he's asked for by an organization called MI9 which was effectively set up to help people escape uh, and run escape lines through occupied Europe and he was considered very valuable to them not only because he had himself escaped from a prisoner of war camp in Germany but he'd also been a what they call a parcel on one of these escape lines. So very early in the war, it was a line that ran through uh, Vichy, France, over the Pyrenees uh, and into Spain and then down to Gibraltar. And he sailed back from there to Scotland, as it happened. But he was given a job working for this organisation, MI9, running similar escape lines through Belgium and the Netherlands with the, with the Dutch underground and especially one run by a, a young Belgian woman called uh, André de Jong. So that, of course, was the legendary Didi de Jong, wasn't it? I, I've taken tours and, uh, of, of the uh, Comet Line route. So that so he was working with, with people like that. Yes, so running those escape lines from London uh, and trying their best to get financing to help them do so. And then after the invasion of Europe, instead of getting people back to England, what they were trying to do is rescue them from behind enemy lines. So he's, by this stage, I mean, he, he's, he's had, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, a, a pretty incredible war. I mean, he, he's been in combat, he's been wounded, he's escaped from two POW camps once successfully. He's made it all the way back to Britain. He's now working for MI9, running escape routes. But again, there's, there's, there's one last trick he's going to pull off, and that's going to be at Nuremberg, isn't it, after the war? So I know it's not a technically a wartime experience, but let's face it, it's still to do with the Second World War. So what does he end up doing at the Nuremberg International Military Tribunal, as we should call it properly? Exactly. Well, he, I mean, this is partly drawing on his brief legal experience before the war. He is given a job working for the, the International War Crimes Tribunal, but firstly gathering evidence against uh, defendants in some of the various trials. But latterly, he, he's given the very specific task of actually serving the main defendants at the main Nuremberg trial with their indictments and giving them their lists of lawyers. So he goes into the each of their cells one by one and has conversations with each of the main defendants. And uh, he's, he's able to remind um, Goering of the time that when Calais fell, uh, he turns up on his train and my grandfather was lying there as a sort of freshly wounded prisoner of war, seeing Goering's train pull into Calais, sort of survey the captured port. He's also able to uh, tell Keitel about his initial unsuccessful attempt dressing up as a Wehrmacht corporal in Colditz in <laughs> August of 41 or whatever it is. So he has these extraordinary, you know, real face-to-face -face meetings with each of them one by one, which he, you know, detailed in the Nuremberg book. 
And this is the book that's just been republished. But it's just extraordinary to think that you, he met all kind of 20 of those defendants, you know, Goering, Hess, Kaltenbrunner, Stryker, Speer. I mean, these are sort of kind of notorious names in the Nazi pantheon. And, and as a young man, presumably now only in his late 20s, as a, as a major, whatever it is, he's the one serving the indictment. You know, that, that really is a kind of capping that wartime experience pretty spectacularly, isn't it? Exactly. And I think his, his time in Nuremberg was fairly extraordinary. I that one thing that about the book that I always find interesting is Rebecca West, who is the journalist covering the trial, I think for the New Yorker and maybe someone else. She met my grandfather at the time and thought he was actually over 40, even though he was only 29. I think he'd been living pretty hard. He had certainly packed into his 20s a hell of a lot more than most of us do. Of course, for most of us, you know, you, you, you could sort of kind of rest in your laurels after the most incredible sort of wartime experience like that. But of course, you know, by the end of the war, he's only in his late 20s. So he's got a whole life and career ahead of him. He obviously ends up in politics and has a very successful career at Westminster. So could you tell me a bit about that? Yes, of course. I mean, he, he actually stayed in the, the Territorial Army as well um, and and lectured the you know various people, armed forces, special forces on escape and evasion throughout you know what we would now call the Cold War. And in parallel, I suppose, he, I think in the early 50s, was elected to Parliament had a few interesting jobs, but I think had health problems got in the way and he famously had a heart attack when he was actually in his 40s. And then, I suppose, politically, what he's best known for is running Margaret Thatcher's leadership campaign and then became the Shadow Step Chief of Northern Ireland um, and you know, threw himself into working on, on that, which ultimately led to his death in 1979, 10 years before I was born. So, of course, notoriously he was murdered, which is just horrific, of course, and this is, of course, why you never knew the man. So what happened to him? The INLA, which was the specific Republican terrorist group that killed him, managed to put an explosive device under his car, and it actually went off in the car park within Palace of Westminster. And that was just, I think it was almost during the, the general election campaign in 79 that resulted in Thatcher winning her first term as prime minister. And actually after, after his death, um, uh, various people got together and they set up this um, memorial charity, uh, which uh, conveniently called the Aaron Eve Trust, uh, of which I am actually now a trustee and all the royalties from his books go to, towards this charity, which funds uh, research, um, academic research and writing uh, on the causes and preventions of terrorism and extremism and, and its various forms, which you can imagine since the late 70s has changed rather a lot. Well, I think it's just the most incredible wartime career and, and you know, and of course, political career as well. But I just find the whole story of your grandfather's sort of six years <laughs> just absolutely sort of mind-boggling really and, and 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 again just to stress it happened all before he was 30 but look thank you so much for coming along for this today i mean i found it absolutely fascinating i could talk to you for hours and hours and indeed we have but that's hopefully given people just a bit of a flavor and i do urge you to to buy any one of those memoirs they are really fantastic reads so sebastian many thanks thank you very much guy thank you just before we go, I want to play you a clip of Margaret Thatcher speaking to the press not long after Airy Neve's murder. And I think these words really sum up what a great man he was. He was one of freedom's warriors. No one knew what a great man he was, how great a man he was, except those nearest to him. 
He was staunch, brave, true, strong. But he was very gentle and kind and loyal. It's a rare combination of qualities. There's no one else who can quite fill them. I and so many other people owe so much to him. Well, that's it for today. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please do subscribe to us or leave a review on either Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify. Just search for History Now and you'll find us. You can also catch up on social media on Twitter, at MailPlus. And of course, you can find me on Twitter far too often, at Guy Walters. Thanks very much. Thank you.